be both inspired and um, innocent in a funny way and fierce at the same time for those who are here. Um, and he's a kind of bhakti in a way. He talked about, you know, devoting his life to God or the divine or whatever it would take to go to God. Um, and he reminded me of the kind of devotion that I saw all the time in the temples of Thailand and Burma and the Tibetan temples and um, tremendous devotion and generosity. In fact, um, D.T. Suzuki, who was a, the great scholar and Zen master, Zen teacher, who introduced Zen in many ways to the West, wrote at one point, oh, the people who get enlightened from Zen are really very small in number. And the ones who really awaken in Asia, throughout Asia, are the ones who do it through devotion. Forget about the koans and all that, and just um, be devoted to something much greater than yourself. And of course, the, the spirit of that devotion in the kind of simple language is not my will but thine, that there's some greater will in the world that's not just our own small sense of self. My teacher in the forests of southern Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, used to talk about this quality of devotion and openness. He said, don't bother teaching the Buddhist teachings of no self and selflessness. He said, why don't you just call it um, not being selfish? <laughs> it's really so simple. <laughs> you know, forget all those other, other languages. And here we are, you know, in this place, um, sitting together as we do on Mondays at the beginning of the week. And last week, Bo Lozoff was a little bit like the divine madman in one, in one way. I really was inspired and admired him. He did a year of silence and three years of retreat and then plunged back into years of working in the prison and so forth. And it made me want to do more in some way. And then on the other hand, um, I began to wonder about his wife, you know, and, and his kids. And like, what's it like for them to live with a, this kind of inspired madman? You know, and in some ways it's like, oh, surrender, and here's all this great stuff you can do. And also here, I've been doing it. It's like, let's be selfless, and here's Bo's big selfless, you know, pitch about it all. Um, and then in another part of me, I find myself drawn more to the, what would I say, to the ordinariness, the ordinary magic of spirituality, of not making it special in some way. And so I raise as much for your reflection as, as for uh, a statement the question of what it is that matures and deepens our heart. What makes us live in a full and devoted and wise way. And in some way it's our capacity to live with an open heart no matter where we are. To embrace all of the beings and life and experiences around us. In another way, you could say that to live in a deeply devoted and spiritual way um, means uh, to be able to let go and just be free where we are.
let go of our expectations. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. He says, we should find perfect existence through imperfect existence. When we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. That nirvana, freedom, liberation, whatever language one would use, is not someplace else. It's not in India or the Himalayas or in some heroic deed. But actually, it is here in the reality of the present with all its tainted glory. Um, It's where we are that allows us to be free when we rest, when we open, when we let go. And we each have our moments, you know, moments of vision and understanding, moments where we see the sunset or look in the eyes of someone we love or sit on the bedside of our child who's sleeping and therefore not any trouble at that moment (laughs) and can remember their innocence and therefore our own, you know. We each have our moments that remind us of the sacredness of life and of our connection with it. I mean, because without that, what is it for to go through our days? Um, it becomes a kind of a grim duty just to get through things without the sense of the holy, the sacred. And one of the things I reflected about and actually have worried about um, a bit, which Bo Lozoff pointed to, was a certain lack of depth that can happen in our community here at Spirit Rock and elsewhere in the West. Um, I was talking with Philip Moffat, who's uh, teaching one of the retreats this week, a retreat on concentration. And as we began to sit, you could hear the bells ringing for those hundred people to go and um, do their sitting as well. And he said one of the things he's liking about the particular retreat he's doing, which is a little bit more of a Um, middle-level retreat, not just the first retreat teachings, he said, is that um, we don't have to just make it simple for people and inviting and not talk down to people. This is the, the deepest teaching that I can give on how to concentrate and steady the mind. And sometimes people come to Spirit Rock because we're in Marin, after all, and it's so beautiful here, and they go up and they get their little single room and, you know, this gorgeous meditation hall, for those of you who haven't been up there on retreat. Um, You know, and they'll come in and they'll say, where's the concierge, you know? (laughs) And I was down at the retreat in Yucca Valley, and then afterwards some friends went over to this spa in Palm Springs, Two Bunch Palms. And so I went there and got the spa menu, which included for your I mean, possibilities, people said, well, well, can't we put in a spa at Spirit Rock, right? <laughs> there was Thai massage that's based on the tradition of Wat Po, this great kind of temple in Thailand that teaches healing practices. And there's Abhyanga massage and Ayurvedic massage and river rock hot and cold stone therapy and Native American massage with dry heat and and desert plants and color therapy and esoteric (laughs) massage and mud and steam massage and watsu in the water and then watsu adu if you want two people, right? (laughs) And then the babasu sugar rub. 
um, the salt glow and herbal uh, massage, and then the chai soy mud body wrap for the kind of culmination. So this is a little bit of the culture that we find ourselves in. I mean, not everybody. It's you know that's a whole class thing as well, but. Um, there's a way in which spiritual practice can be just, you know, part of, oh, a good life of having um, fine varietal wines and um, some therapy and, you know. <laughs> but it's not fundamentally, yes, you can, and Bo was talking about it, you can get to a point where you become calmer and more centered and. Um, easier with things um, and yet there's something deeper for us all and that depth doesn't come through will all right I'm going to do it you know in some way it really comes from dedication and from love and from trust and the trust that you can go through what your life asks of you even in the difficulties, to turn toward the difficulties and say, all right, with this difficulty, I'm going to allow that to enhance the dignity, the nobility, the compassion, the graciousness of my life. Rumi, the poet, talks about those who go into the fire end up under the water in this beautiful spring, and those who avoid the fire, you know, um, and go into the water instead they end up they dive into the stream and they end up in the fire in his poem and Carl Jung it's actually a, a student of Carl Jung who wrote to him Let's see if I can find this passage wild out there tonight, isn't it? It's great. Um, What's both Carl Jung and some commentary from uh, Swami um, Kripalu says the major principle in self-awareness is that we remain open and objective and receive what is present without trying to remove what is so, otherwise we get caught in it. The tar baby effect, says Swami Kripalu. Instead, we have to go into the fire and pass through our suffering by keeping quiet, writes one of Jung's patients, repressing nothing, remaining attentive, and accepting what is true, taking things as they are and not as I want them to be. By doing this, unusual knowledge and unusual powers will come, such as you could never imagine. I always thought that when we accepted things, they overpowered us in some way or other. This turns out not to be true at all. It is only by accepting them that one can assume an attitude of wisdom toward them. So now I intend to play the game of life being receptive to whatever comes, good, bad, sun, shadow, forever alternating, and in this way, accepting my own nature with all its sides. And thus everything becomes more alive to me. What a fool I was, how I tried to force everything to go according to the way I thought it ought to, instead of simply opening my heart.
When I was practicing in the monasteries of southern Thailand um, years ago, one of the monks and translators there who became a good friend was this Cambodian teacher uh, named Mahago Sananda that then became the Gandhi of Cambodia after the Cambodian War and Holocaust. Um, and he was sitting in meditation and translating for a few other Westerners who were there. And he was a, quite a good friend. He was about 15 years older than I was. And um, some of us would watch him, and he would sit there and smile and read his books. He was a very um, knowledgeable scholar. And we'd be sitting there, you know, for four and eight and 12 hours at a time doing all these kind of yogic practices and, and um, amazing kind of rigorous training at this particular temple. And he'd be very relaxed about it and, and kind of cheerful, and, but not really do it. And, and I always thought, well, he's a sweet old guy, a sweet guy and a scholar, but not really very much of a meditator and probably not all that wise. <laughs> what I didn't realize is that he didn't do it because he didn't really need to do it. <laughs> and he was kind of humoring us and supporting us all along. And then it turned out that when the terrible things happened in Cambodia... Um, he walked right into the fire. He was one of the few elders that wasn't killed. Um, and so when he could, for 15 years, he led um, Dhamma Yatra, um, Dharma peace walks through the areas of fighting with hundreds of monks and lay people, and they'd throw grenades and shoot at them and so forth, and he would stop and just do prayers of compassion for everyone until the fighting stopped and then continued to walk. Um, and Sogni Rinpoche, who was here teaching this wonderful Tibetan Lama a few weeks ago, said, you know, could we get him to come and do some teaching together with the Tibetan Lamas? I'd love to see that. He said, because, I said, why would you like him to come? He said, because whenever I'm with him, it feels like he, he, just his smile, his presence transforms everything. He's so loving. And Brother David Stendelras came to me one day. He said, I was just at a conference on Buddhist-Christian dialogue, and there was this little kind of butterball of a monk in orange robe smiling who was upstaging the Dalai Lama. Do you know his name? (laughs) Oh, that's Gosananda. And it's so interesting, because here's Bolo's off, for those who are here, doing his way. And Gosananda, who's incredibly simple, he gets places and he just looks at people and loves them. That's all he does, really. Or Ajahn Sumedho, my very good friend, who doesn't talk about it in terms of love. He talks about it in terms of letting go. He says, for Western minds obsessed by grasping and thinking, the trick is to simplify your meditation practice to just two words, let go rather than to try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that. The grasping mind wants to read the Buddhist texts and study the Abhidharma and learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go? Let go. For years, I did nothing in my practice but this. Every time I tried to figure it out and change things, I'd say, let go. Let go until the desire would fade. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. 
There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the new Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only these poverty-stricken practices. The beautiful thing about the awakened heart and the awakened mind is that it's like a crystal. Um, And when you look in the facets of a crystal, you see the rainbow of colors. And when the mind becomes silent and the heart open, enlightenment is expressed as vast stillness or as boundless compassion. It's expressed as no separation, no one here and no one there, just us. You turn the crystal again, and it becomes clarity, the ability to see things exactly as they are. Sometimes it's expressed as emptiness, and then you turn the crystal, and sometimes it's expressed as wholeness, sometimes as illumination, sometimes just love sometimes freedom. And all these different languages and words and spirits of Sumedho and Gosananda and Bolozov and whoever it happens to be are really reminders to us of the possibility of a shift of identity from the small sense of self, the body of fear, to who we really are to the resting in the place of wisdom, our true nature, our Buddha nature. And here's the Buddha in the story, in the myth, sitting under his tree of enlightenment, being attacked by the armies of Mara, of temptation and desire and aggression and all these things. And he takes what Joseph Candleville translates as the immovable seat, the unshakable seat in the middle of the world, and lets all the things of the world come and go bows to them all as they come and yet will not be moved by them touches them all with compassion sees them for what they are and rests in the great heart of compassion and in the mind that is absolutely spacious and clear and he sit and he saw all the visions and the possibilities of human life and then looked and said well who is it this has happened to To whom? Who am I that have gone through all these experiences you have? Who is it that took this body this time? And when he looked most deeply, he saw that the whole idea that he existed at all, separate from the rest, was a kind of tentative fiction that we use. You need it. You need to know your area code and zip code and social security number, apparently, these days and so forth. But um, that's not who you are. I mean, they only are going to give you like $1,000 a month if you're lucky, you know, when you get it from your Social Security. So I hope that's not your identity. And the phone company could change your area code in a moment, you know. Who are you? And the Buddha looked and he said, all these identities are possible, but that's not what came into this life and what leaves it. That's not who we really are at all. Who we are in our true nature is freedom and luminosity and love and connectedness, we are life itself awakening.
And then he taught people. He said, well, you can come from the small sense of self and the body of fear, and if you do, if that's who you take yourself to be, you'll suffer. Or you can let go of clinging, release, be free, and free yourself from struggle and suffering. And this is possible. I teach it because it's possible for you as for me. And then he taught it very practically. He said, here's an example. (coughs) Look how he abused me and beat me and threw me down and robbed me. This is kind of serious stuff, right? Look how he abused me and beat me and threw me down and robbed me. Continue to live with such thoughts and you live in hatred. Look how he abused me and beat me and threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. Knowing that that you too shall pass away so soon, how can you quarrel? That's a pretty fierce teaching. All these terrible things have happened. Do you want to perpetuate it? Or abandon these thoughts, abandon this, and live in love? That's how you can be free, he says. Or in another Buddhist text, the Buddha, the, the, the Blessed One spoke to those sitting with him. I will teach you the best way to live And they all said, please do, sir, sir. He said, simple, simply, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has yet to come. Look deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. And looking deeply in life, rest in the present. Dwell in stability and freedom, inviting, available, In observing life deeply, it is possible to see clearly all that is. Not enslaved by a single thing, it is possible to put aside craving and fear. The result is a life of peace and joy. This is truly how to live. So these are both instructions and invitations and reminders of what's possible. An invitation to let go, an invitation to nobility and dignity and freedom for any of us. And they are both fierce instructions. I mean, it's pretty tough to let go in certain circumstances. And at the same time, really generous ones because they look at you and say, you too are the Buddha. You too are one who can live with a great heart of compassion and mercy. You too can find freedom in yourself no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. You too can live with integrity. Now one of the central practices for living in this way is the practice of forgiveness which is really what the Buddha was teaching in that first text that I read. And I was talking to my daughter yesterday, and she was describing the messy divorce of some friends of hers. 
been married a few years, one or another of them had an affair, they have a young kid, and there is so much blame and bitterness. And the families of each of the divorcing parties have kind of taken up their family banner and are seeing the other as the bad one and the enemy. You know how that happens? I'm sure you do. And blaming in this terrible way. We can do that in this world, in our life, says the Buddha, and then we'll suffer. Or we can live with nobility and dignity and care and let things go. There was a woman who came on the two-month winter retreat a couple years ago, and wonderful practitioner, and she was struggling a lot at a certain point in the retreat because a great deal of unfinished business with her daughter came up. And she and her daughter were pretty much estranged. And her daughter had a child, so this woman had about a five- or six-year-old granddaughter. And they hardly talked to one another. And Her mother was bitter about it in some way, this woman, um, and uh, upset about certain things. And she sat with it and really had to weep and feel the suffering of it. And one day she came in, and she looked at me, and she said, I realize something. I said, yes. She said, I realize that she's never going to be the daughter I hoped for. And I'm never going to be the mother she wanted her to be. And that's just how it is. And I realize that I will not pass this suffering on to yet another generation. When I get out of here, I'm just going to go back on my knees and say, I did the best I could and I'm really, really sorry. And I love you. And I just don't want to continue it anymore. To live the realization of a free heart, you have to practice, it turns out. It's always available to us, but you know how it is. Circumstances get difficult and we get completely triggered and caught up in them for a long time. And that's why there are practices. We can practice using the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Buddha really is the word that means to be awake or to know our Buddha nature. And so we practice mindfulness. We sit in meditation and quiet the mind and pay attention to breath and body, to feelings and thoughts and the whole of our life that comes through us and learn the power of mindfulness to be awake and not lost in our reactivity and our fears, our dreams. I mean, you know what it's like. You go through some part of the day or the week, something at work or something that's difficult, and some whole big thing you're caught up in, and then there'll be a moment where you wake up and you say, wow, I was really lost in that one, wasn't I? Really caught up, really upset. And it's almost like the, the, the bubble breaks, the clouds clear. And that moment, that gap, is this tremendous possibility of, oh, this is just the clouds obscuring a deep knowing much bigger than all that I got caught up in. And this is the Buddha, the one who knows within you. And the Dharma is the Dharma of seeing the way things are, seeing the truth. Dharma is a word that means truth. The third Zen ancestor says that enlightenment, to be enlightened 
is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That the world isn't perfect and it never will be, at least according to your ideas about it. And to be enlightened is not to be anxious about that. Say, well, this is how it is. Doesn't mean one can't serve and change and work for justice and the things that matter. But this is the world. This is the human world. And to practice the Dharma is to discover the joy of seeing things the way they are and not clinging to how they're supposed to be. And the Sangha, the Sangha means community. It really means that we can't do it alone, that we're responsible to one another, that we're connected to one another. And in a certain way, it means that we practice with one another and we even practice out loud. You get caught up in things and then you tell somebody, you tell your friend, you tell someone else and they say, wow, you're really caught in this one, aren't you? And you go, oh yeah, thank you. I mean, it's not very complicated that we can help one another, that the nobility and dignity and understanding that we carry can shine sometimes more easily for someone else. And as we practice the power of mindfulness and the practice of truthfulness and compassion and non-clinging and responsibility for one another, it changes us. I mean, all the modern scientific, you know, fMRI studies of... Um, the brain in the most sophisticated way they can which is still actually quite limited it's a little bit like putting a stethoscope on the side of the television kind of listening to what's happening there but still it's a little better than it used to be they make it clear that in meditation brain chemistry changes and it's measured in the blood or hormones change but more than that the very wiring of the nervous system changes that what we attend to, as we attend to it, and the ways we pay attention, develop whole new neural pathways and neural patterns, and it's true till the day you die. So you begin to create a brain that mirrors your heart, that mirrors your wisdom, as you practice. Practice compassion, and it changes your brain, and makes those pathways accessible for you in all different circumstances. And as we do, there starts to come a kind of a shift. Father Theophane, who is a wonderful old Trappist monk that uh, I knew who died a few years ago, he came to one of our first three-month meditation retreats in the East Coast uh, probably almost 30 years ago as a student and very interested in Buddhist practice after years of Cistercian Trappist practice like Thomas Merton. Um, he learned things. He also studied Zen. He was a very open-minded guy. And he had a thousand questions. Oh, how does it fit with Christianity? How does it fit with modern psychology? All these questions. I saw him periodically over the years, and then maybe ten years after he did that retreat, he came back to our three-month retreat just at the end to give a little talk about Christian mystical practice, especially to the lapsed Catholics in the in the group and other other people who'd had um, diff, a variety of difficulties with their Christian upbringing, um, and he was very sweet about it and kind of a foot in both worlds. Well, what was most beautiful in hearing him speak 
was how wise he was. And as I listened to him, I realized that he had gone from being a seeker 10 years before, somebody who was trying to get the questions answered and figure it out and, you know, how this fits together and so forth. The next time he spoke, the 10 years later, he sat there and he just spoke from his heart. And he said, oh, the church, yeah, has all these problems, but I love it anyway. You know, that's how it is with loving anybody, you know different sides to them and people would ask questions and his answers came from this place of deep love and wisdom extremely simple and he had shifted somehow from being a seeker to being a finder to being somebody who knew that love was what mattered and resting in that who knew that the heart could be free and lived in that place and that's really the invitation for us To practice, yes, but to practice in order to come to our own deep knowing of freedom, our own maturity, our own love that is unshakable. Or that gets shaken, but, you know, then comes back to center. One of the central practices that helps restore us to this dignity and presence and possibility is the practice of forgiveness. We all make mistakes regularly, over and over. Anybody not? I'm just curious. (laughs) Foolish enough to raise your hand, right? So in the the monasteries, in the Buddhist uh, training centers. There's a forgiveness practice called Pavarana where we come together regularly to, to talk about what we need to forgive among ourselves <clears throat> and to extend forgiveness and to ask forgiveness. And part of what's interesting about it is it's repeated regularly. It's not like, okay, you finish it and done with forgiveness, now let's move on. Um, it's a practice. We carry so many stories and ideas about how it's supposed to be. Remember the Ojibwe Indian saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Or that story I like to tell, I'll give it in the short version of this man, an army officer who'd been just starting to learn meditation for his bad temper and anger. Anyway, in line in the grocery store and the woman in front of him is carrying a baby and in the wrong line because she only has one item. She's not in the express line and he likes people to be in the right lines, you know. And then she stops and talks to the clerk and holds the baby up and they're oogling and cooing and you know how it is with babies and he's getting more and more angry and finally he gets up to the clerk and you know, he has to admit that was a cute little boy. And she said, oh, do you like him? That's my baby, you see. My husband was uh, in the Air Force, but he was killed last year. So um, now I got to work, and my mom takes care of him. She tries to bring him in once a day so I can see him. And it's so easy for us to have ideas about who should be doing what and how it should be happening. Um, But if we were inside them, inside their experience and understanding their life um, and the suffering, their measure of sorrow, it would be so much harder to judge them. It's not to say that we might ask them to do something differently, but not in the same judgmental way. 
It's hard to imagine a life without forgiveness. It's hard to imagine a world without the practice of forgiveness. Without forgiveness, it means we can't let go. We can't let go of the betrayal or the suffering of the past. Without forgiveness, the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats just do it every you know, 50 or 100 years over and over and over. Or the Northern Irish Catholics and Protestants do their marches. Well, this happened in the 1400s and this happened in the 1800s and I'm not going to let go of it by God, you know. By God, yes, as a matter of fact. Sorry about that, God, you know. Um, or the Sunnis and the Shias or whatever it happens to be. We need to find a way to let go of betrayal, to let go of suffering, and to release the burdens of pain that we carry. With forgiveness, we become unwilling to wish harm on another. It's that simple. There's a kind of humility to it. And in this human life, I mean, we're all vulnerable, you know. We're all in the middle of possibility and difficulty. We are. And it's upon our vulnerability, says Rilke, that we depend, if we're honest about it. In this vulnerable human life, every loss is either an opportunity to shut out the world or to stand up with dignity and let the heart respond. When his son was murdered by Palestinian gunmen, Yitzhak Frankenthaler stood up with a group of friends in front of the Israeli prime minister's residence and said, I am unwilling to to delegate my ethics to soldiers and politicians. If the security forces were to strike back now and kill innocent Palestinians in retaliation, I would tell them they were no better than my son's killers. Even if they found his killer, who was planning another murderous attack, if he were surrounded by innocent children or civilians, I would say no. Do not seek revenge. Do all you can to avoid and prevent the violence, the death of Israelis, of Palestinians, of any human being. But do not kill in my son's name, in my son who has died, in his name. Please listen. We become unwilling to wish harm on another no matter what's happened. And in doing so, we free ourselves, we free our hearts, free ourselves from the past. And forgiveness doesn't mean we condone what happened. We may say, never again, I will do everything I can to prevent this kind of suffering from continuing. It's not a kind of naive forgiveness. And it doesn't justify what happened. It's not a quick fix, paper it over, oh, I forgive. There can be grief and outrage and anger and sorrow. But in the end, it's simply an unwillingness to put anyone out of our heart. If you want to see the brave, says the Bhagavad Gita, look to those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can return love for hatred. And we all know in this world, globally, that in most tragic situations, in Rwanda or Cambodia 
or Iraq, the people living there or in Palestine in Israel need to find a path to reconciliation. They're going to need to do that because they live with one another. They're going to need to find a way to release themselves from the clutches of trauma and the suffering that's part of their human experience. And we can do this, says the Buddha. As Martin Luther King says, we can meet physical force with soul force. We can practice in such a way that we live our life as a testament to our nobility rather than to the body of fear. And we're called upon to do it as individuals and community members and family members and also as a nation because there are beautiful ideals in the democracy of America. Um, What's that poem by Langston Hughes about uh, honoring America the America that never was, but that could be. Um, I mean, part of the tragedy of whatever kind of foreign policy sufferings that we see or injustice within our own country at different times is that we not only individually but collectively want to act in a noble way. There's a kind of legacy that we'd like to fulfill and that's really precious. And that's part of the suffering of it, isn't it? When we feel that we can't do that collectively or individually. Because, as Gandhi says, I believe in the unity of all that lives. And therefore I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. And somehow we know that it's not just them. That if we are to awaken and be free and liberated in ourselves in a deep way, and to live a light that lets that light, life that lets that luminosity of heart shine, um, a lot is asked of us. Um, and yet, what, what more beautiful thing to do with this life we've been given? So let's do a little practice of uh, forgiveness. You know, there's one little more piece that I forgot to add in here, and I think I will. Let's get ready for this. This is from the journal that comes from the San Francisco Jung Institute. Um, And there's a wonderful article this month by a Jungian analyst who practices in Israel, and he sees both um, uh, Jewish and Palestinian patients. And he sees this young professional Palestinian woman, one of the things that he talks about. Um, And she came to see him because she heard he was the best analyst that people knew. And she wanted to trust him in some way. Um, And she'd seen so much suffering. And then when there were suicide bombings, he said, I felt the force of her wanting to see me as an enemy. 
And at other times I struggled against a similar tendency in which I perceived her as one of them and not as an individual. And yet gradually, um, gradually, we began to make a relationship with one another. And all of a sudden there was this dramatic incident that happened. Um, It was in a session where she said at some point, I hate all Jews. And I sat there, he said, um, and I felt that this was a testament to the safety that I'd made for her, that she could actually say this. And then she was leaving that session, and on the door was a little mezuzah, a little prayer box that are part of the Jewish, Orthodox Jewish household. Um, And uh, as she went out, she reached over and kissed that, and then she turned around and spit, spat on it and spat on the ground in disgust. And he said this was kind of a symbolic act showing the psychic pressure of the Palestinians to become like the dominators, and yet at the same time, those, those who have oppressed her. But it was also her way of working out this conflict. Um, and as I began to accept what was in her, the violence that had happened to her and the hatred and the pain in her, she began to feel closer to me. She began to fantasize that I was not really Jewish, but perhaps Christian. (laughs) And I understood that this is an attempt to conceptualize our our therapy outside of the Arab-Israeli conflict as a defense against, you know, getting back into the categories. It was safe to love a Christian where it was treason to love a Jew. And gradually she came to see me more as an individual and less as a Jew. And this, in turn, helped her to discover who she really was, not as a Palestinian, but as a human being. And it's a beautiful piece of work. He describes much more in there. Um, This is our work, to love each other in that very, very deep way and to love this world. So let's do a little of the forgiveness practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.